0: Still in the rotor, I had one turn where I was banked up at probably uh, 50 degrees of bank, probably 75 knots. It rolled me to 45 degree bank in the opposite direction, so I was in a left turn to a 45 degree right bank, and then pitched me over to the point where the only thing in my field of view was ground.
1: This is Soaring the Sky, a Glider Pilots podcast, coming to you from the Mid-Atlantic region here in the United States and bringing you great soaring content from glider pilots all over the globe. We now join Chuck and our guest pilot.
2: Hello and welcome back to the podcast. If it's your first time with us, we hope you enjoy this episode and check out our huge library of more great soaring content. A big thank you to our newest Patreon pilot, Michael Majors. We greatly appreciate your support. If you want to help support the podcast so we can continue to grow and keep bringing you more great soaring content, you can click the link in the show notes or go to patreon.com slash soaringthesky. You can also see other ways to help us out at soaringthesky.com. We have a great episode lined up for you today. Mitch, our producer, recently ran into Morgan Hall. Now, Morgan had just experienced an amazing uncharted route flying wave in the Sierras. Morgan's family has a deep aviation background that goes all the way back to World War II. So it's not a surprise that he was determined to start his own aviation journey. So listen to this. He traded his computer for an ultralight. That's right. I love this story, but let's let him tell it and join Mitch right now and Morgan for episode one seventeen. Morgan Hall, welcome to Soaring the
3: Sky.
0: Thank you. Thanks for having me.
3: So we've got a chance to meet you uh few weeks back up at Avenal and just happened to be the day that you had a pretty, pretty crazy, uh, wave flight, um, from pretty far West out to the East side of the, uh, Sierra in, in uh, big wave conditions. And, uh, I remember everybody was looking at their phones all day trying to keep track of you and seeing what was going on. And that was really, uh, that was really a cool day, I think for everybody long day for you,
0: yeah, um, I was absolutely wiped at the end of that one
3: yeah, and we we just barely made the uh taco place with like five minutes to spare before all the food in town was was basically uh we were we were gonna be going to like seven eleven or the mini mart for you know for nachos or something um just a few minutes after so uh well, before we get into any of that, any of that stuff on your your kind of epic flight that day, um, what we usually do is start off with uh, just having the guest pilot do kind of a brief uh, flyover of of uh, their aviation bio and and sort of where where your aviation journey um, you know began for you and how you, how you got into to soaring and all that.
0: Sure. Happy to talk about that. Um, so I think I, I have aviation DNA if that's possible. Um, you know, I think it was passed down. My father's side of the family, um, had aviators in it going back to world war II, um, bomber trainers, uh, airline executives. Uh, I didn't, my, my dad didn't, uh, it was my parents were divorced, so so I, I didn't spend a lot of time with my dad. So I didn't actually get to spend my my youth growing up in in aircraft. But I did get a chance to fly with him a few times in uh, in the early '80s. My journey really in flying started probably in the early '90s, and I I actually traded a computer for an ultralight, and uh, and I flew that thing out of Paso Robles for uh, probably a year or two. Um, this was back before all the vineyards and everything were were everywhere so we could we could ground skim and fly around uh you know low altitude and not really have to worry too much about landing because you could chop the power and land anywhere um so, but so how really,
3: were you when you started flying ultralights?
0: oh i was uh probably 20 21 okay. um so uh you know young enough to be dumb i suppose but uh smart enough to get it smart enough to get away with most things um but i really didn't love flying with the engine i mean i, I enjoyed the flying it was it was fun but um Noisy. you know i found my i found myself out there on on a couple of cloud-filled prefrontal days with the thing pulled back to idle and you know trying to thermal this ultralight that you know honestly had probably a 600 foot permanent sink rate with the engine off and um at the same time, I was flying uh, remote control gliders a bunch, and one day in probably you know spring of 1992, I was flying my remote control glider on a hill in Cayucos, and this crazy dude ran off the hill and flew over the top of me in a hang glider. And over the next few months, I got to know the the local pilots, and mm-hmm. um, you know that really piqued my interest. And eventually, I did some training with them. Um, a couple of guys, Charlie Bedouin and, uh, Trevor Kurth were kind of instrumental into getting me into, into flying mm-hmm. hang gliders and <clears throat> really ran with that for about 17 years. Um, you know, cut my, my teeth in cross country flying out of, uh, the Cuyama Valley, a site called Plowshare Peak. Um, lots of flying in the Owens in the summer times trips up to Canada and Washington. So pretty good cross country experience, um, you know flights in excess of 170 miles uh you know I, I, had nice. a, I had a had a pretty pretty good foundation uh for for soaring when um i decided you know i was ready for a different challenge or something a little different and in 2008 um took a, a demo flight did,
3: did, you, uh, did your ankles and knees and everything make it in one piece through all those years
0: um, for the most part, I have, a you know, I had surgery on my, on my knee from a, a blown meniscus, uh, you know, landing downwind with a hang, with an 80 pound hang glider on your back can, uh, yeah. can, can, can beat you up. Um, but, mm-hmm. uh, but for the most part, I, I, I was relatively injury free other than, other than the knee. Um, but you know, all yeah. of us had close calls or I remember landing downwind once and on short final. Seeing my GPS indicating 28 miles an hour over the ground, and I was like, well oh, this, oh, this isn't going to end well." <laughs> uh, no. No. So, uh, but really, <laughs> all of my er- early soaring started in hang gliders.
3: Yeah, we had a hang glider pilot on just uh, a couple of episodes ago, um, and yeah, you'd be surprised how many how many um, glider pilots were flying RC, um, you know, such as, yeah, myself has flying RC gliders for, I don't know, 15 years or something. And then I just got tired of looking at this little plastic guy in the cockpit. And I thought, well, you know, why not me? You know, why does it have to be you every, every day? Right. Exactly. So, so yeah. Uh, so 2008. Yep. Yeah, 2008.
0: Uh, went out to Avonall and took a demo flight in a 233, um, which you know wasn't what wasn't what I was there to fly. I mean, I, I I knew that I had to go through the training process, but but I was enamored with glass ships, not with 233s. Um, nonetheless, hopped in it. Uh, I think got off tow and climbed about 5,000 feet in a thermal and uh realized yep i can do this but man i i have to do something with my feet instead of just point my toes all of a sudden so mm-hmm. um decided that you know that was a that that was something i wanted to try and uh, i think uh, my wife julie and i were she took a demo flight that day as well and uh, i think we were out at avanol every weekend for like the next two and a half months straight you know didn't miss a didn't miss a, a saturday um and uh soloed in 10 flights, whatever, whatever the minimum was essentially, uh, to, to have gone through the basics and then, um, took my check ride in January of 2009. And, and then we pretty shortly thereafter hopped on, uh, hopped on a plane to New Zealand and spent, uh, three weeks in New Zealand and, and spent about four I days in Amarama flying with, uh, Gavin Wills. Oh man. So that kind of lit a fire. I realized, man, this whole two seat flying is pretty awesome. Yeah. Um, and the Duo Discus is great. And I let uh, let my friend Todd Robinson and uh, Rex Mays know that, hey, if you ever, you know, see a good deal on a two seater, let me know. <laughs> and like three months later, you know, they called me, Todd calls mm-hmm. me and says, hey, we got a duo that just came in. That's It's pretty rough, but you know, you might be interested in, and uh, my thought was like, you know, when I said, if you ever, I kind of meant like in a year or two, not like right now, so, um, <laughs> but I managed to, you know, I figured out how to fund it, and uh, and and made an offer on, made an offer on Five Hotel, and bought that in December of 2009, so not even a year after getting my license. Um, we picked up, a, we picked up a Duodiscus, and it was, it was in pretty rough shape, the wings were really, really crazed but um you know good good solid bones and a great flying airplane um, started flying that pretty extensively I had an ASW 20 that I was a partner in um,
3: so you know, I'm curious the, on the, on your on your your crazed wings what did what did you what did you do to mitigate that at the time did, did you you know do take it take it down and do like a a, a, a pu um, like a poly, paint you or just do like a cut and buff and just kind of live with it or how did you how did you deal with that
0: well so the since i had spent everything i possibly could actually all the money that i'd saved to uh remodel our kitchen and i couldn't come up with a decent design turned into an airplane which honestly was the best money i could have, you know best thing i could have done with that money at the time um so we didn't really have any money to to refinish the wings i think that was the reason the 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 people that owned it were selling it so they didn't like, you know, a $40,000 price tag for, for a complete refinish. Yeah. Um, so I, I got it back and I went after it with sandpaper, you know, um, yeah. 800 grit to start with. Um, the crazing, the, the crazing was so bad it, it felt about like running your hands over a cheese grater. I mean, it was literally sharp, and you know you could feel it scrape on your on the palms of your hands when you ran them across the wing. So uh, did some eight hundred for hours and hours, and then a thousand, and then twelve hundred, and then and then cut and polish from there. And and it actually looked pretty good, you know, with a heavy wax job. Uh, it's
2: right.
0: it smoothed It smoothed out. Um, I just had to go through that basically every year for the next five or six years because. Any moisture that got into the trailer, it would cause the little crazing edges to, to lift, and you'd, you'd notice in spring that your wings were starting to feel pretty rough. Um, interestingly enough, it, it really didn't seem to impact the way it flew. Um, prior to a contest one year, uh, I went out one morning and I wet sanded one wing because it was practice day and I only had time to do one before you know getting the meetings going. So I wet sanded one wing, got it perfectly smooth. The other wing was completely rough and terrible feeling. I thought for sure there'd be a, a, a turn or some kind of a tendency that you'd notice. Couldn't tell at all. Airplane flew fine. Um, and uh,
3: yeah, I'm, I'm and, dealing, I'm dealing with kind of a crazing situation as well. But just kind of living with it. Pretty much the same approach that that uh, that you took.
0: Yep. Keep it waxed. Um, you know eventually uh i did have uh my buddy todd refinish it um and he spent about 450 hours probably between oh, wow. most of that and en- most of that ends up being sanding you know either sanding it off or sanding the- and polishing the the new polyurethane that went on it but um you know mm-hmm. it came out looking like like sheet glass when he when he finished it and uh it's beautiful still flies great um, now, the only the, do- off- the only downside
3: you also fly powered,
0: right? Yeah, so uh, I didn't. I didn't pick up my power license until 2014. I was working up in the Bay Area, living on the Central Coast, and really hating the occasional three and a half hour drive. So I thought, you know, why not add my my power ticket and and commute sometimes in a power plane? So I was able to. Um, I was actually able to basically borrow a share of a Cessna 150 from. One of our, our club members uh, frank owen and uh i think zach may have mentioned him on a previous pro- podcast but uh
3: mm-hmm.
0: he uh he loaned me his share of his of his cessna 150 while he was out of the country and i had 90 days to get my power ticket done that's uh, awesome got that taken care of and then later in 2014 purchased a, a glass air 2 rg which is a fairly fairly quick two seat Experimental retractable landing gear, 200 horsepower, great commuter airplane. You know, cruises pretty happily at about 175 knots.
3: Yeah, that's a really cool. Um, that's a that's a really cool, uh, really cool plane, and and it's definitely a lot easier than than the drive uh, out to to Avonall. And I guess, yes, yeah, sticking with Avonall for a second. So can you can you just talk a little bit about? just um, about the airport and the, the club and kind of the surrounding soaring conditions and just like where it physically is for our our sort of non-U.S. Um, listeners?
0: Sure. So uh, you and I are based in California, um, which is a, a pretty big state, you know, and um, the central California where I live, I live over on the coast, on the Pacific. Um, Avenal is about 100 kilometers, 60 miles inland from from the ocean on the western side of the Central Valley. So it's south of Fresno by about an hour, um, and it's north uh, of Paso Robles, California by about an hour. And uh, what makes Avenal pretty special from a flying perspective is that it, it sits just on the eastern side of a coastal convergence. So we have marine air that flows down the the Salinas Valley, uh, it gets sort of trapped by the mountains, and on the eastern side of that, we have kind of a a typical northerly flow that flows down the San Joaquin Valley. And where those two air masses interact, we get a a very consistent and strong convergence line. Um, Mostly presents as stronger thermals to higher altitude, but um, it gives us a nice predictable highway, essentially. And, Mm -hmm. And so we turn a lot of flights out of Avenal that are um, much farther and much faster than you would typically think for a, for, you know, five or 6,000 foot AGL types of thermals um, uh-huh. just because uh, the, the convergence line really adds a lot of energy into the system. So the club itself is, is usually between like 40 and 60 members. It has a handful of training gliders, a few instructors, um, a, a, we use a Cessna 150 as a tow plane. It's a 150 horsepower, but it um, it gets the job done since we're only at about 800 feet uh, MSL. And um, luckily, there's aside from power lines off the end of the runway, there's nothing to hit. You know, you've been there, and pretty much if you close your eyes and just hold the stick still, yeah. you, you you can land in almost any direction if you if you needed to in an emergency. So it's pretty friendly in that regard. Um, and then the mountains are. Are, are relatively close. They're about 3000 feet higher than the, than the Valley where the, where the airport's located. So, um, they give us some unique conditions as far as, um, they, they help, they help line up the convergence, which is our, our you know, primary weather mechanism that we, that we leverage. But during Southwest and westerly flow, we can also mm-hmm. get wave off of them, which kind of, um, leads to towards the, the, the flight that we'll talk about in a little
2: bit. Aerox, the number one in portable and engineered aviation oxygen systems, your source for FAA approved oxygen masks and portable oxygen systems. And now introducing the Aerox Pro 2 Plus Flight Bag Portable Oxygen System. Small, lightweight, and simple to use, the Pro 2 Plus is perfect for the occasional user who wants the flexibility to access higher altitudes without worry about flying impaired. Now available at Aerox distributors and at Aerox.com. So remember, our friends at Aerox engineered for aviators.
3: Yeah, I remember my first my first uh, flight out of there. It was kind of it was kind of slow going. The convergence was that I don't know seven eight thousand feet or something, but the the mountains had enough kind of thermal activity that you could just kind of ratchet your way up slowly and once things started waking up and then you know then engage with the convergence. and then once you're in the convergence then you can just kind of go um you know forever and it, it, you know that day it was kind of both both kind of north and south or i guess i guess southeast and northwest because the mountains kind of um line up that way but but yeah and then as far as the you know the the just the landouts and I mean, the Valley's just got just tons of uh, fallow fields. And like you said, you almost close your eyes and and you'd, you'd probably, you know, land and be fine and the glider is fine, which is another really cool thing about, um, you know, people that are kind of new to, to cross country that want to, you know, push out, but not, you know, freak out about where they're landing. Um, necessarily. And there's, uh, there's a lot of paved strips as well. So it's that it is really unique in that way.
0: Yeah, there's, you rarely have to go more than about 20 miles um, between either paved strips or duster strips. So something that you're happy. Since I primarily fly a duo, that's a 20 meter ship. Um, it's kind of nice to have plenty of room. You don't want to have to be, uh, you know, landing a, a on anything particularly narrow or with fences or obstacles on on the sides. Cause you've, you've got right. Right, 65, 65 feet of wingspan to deal with. Um, and, but we've yeah. got, we've got quite a few options um, within, you know, like I said, typically they're spaced about 15, 15 miles apart um, t- for, for, for what I would consider to be very good usable landouts that are in a database. You don't have to worry too much about, um, you know, whether or not there's going to be farm equipment on it or something like that. Um, and then if you need it, you, you've, you've really got tons and tons of, of cultivated fields that, that are, are perfectly, perfectly safe to land in. If you, if you have to, I, I think I've only landed off airport twice in the last, you know, 13 years of flying out of here. Um, and that's, it's not for not, not, I mean, I've certainly put myself in positions where I was close to having to land out, but the, the fact of the matter is there's enough, there's enough airports so that, that you don't really have to risk the, um, you know, damaging the glider or right. from an unseen ground squirrel hole or something like that.
3: Yeah. So, all right. So as we kind of move through, we're going to do a couple setup questions before we get into your, um, get into your wave flight and uh and so apart from that um apart from that flight if you had to pick one flight um that for whatever reason stands out in your memory banks um what would that be and just tell
0: us a little bit about that day you know i think the ones that stick out in my mind are actually the ones that end up not being that spectacular of a flight but they they end up being more memorable because, you know, of the amount of, of struggle or or something that you feel. Um, a few years back, probably eight now, uh, I was flying with Ethan Ronat. He was in the backseat of the duo. And I had been trying to capture the egg, which is a, a Pacific Soaring Council trophy that goes from airport to airport, depending on who captures it. And it was in air sailing, which is North of Reno, Nevada. And, and so I'd been trying to find a way to capture it from Avenal. And, uh, I had a ground crew lined up and we were going to give it a, a shot. So we were going to go what we call around the horn, which is to go South to the Tehachapi's, across the Tehachapi's to the Sierras and then North on the Sierras. So Ethan and I, uh, Ethan was game and, uh, Got him in the back seat. We were we were set up to go and headed south. And it just it, it just wasn't quite the right day. You know, things weren't working. We were in California Valley, we're at a thousand feet AGL, um, going, Oh, well, maybe we're gonna be landing down here. This is inconvenient and then uh, you know, dug a thermal out there and crossed over to the hatchepies and they weren't working, and then crossed back towards Taft, and I think we were we were probably down again to a thousand AGL and only a few miles from the airport. And because of the way the Hills are set up, couldn't see the runway. So <laughs> I was just, I wasn't willing to like push up this. It's not quite fair to call it a Canyon. Cause it's, it's more of a gully, but you know, it's, it's only a couple hundred foot high Hills on the sides. Um, but you know, you're, you're three miles away according to the GPS and you, and you literally can't see the airport and you're like, something's, something's not right. I'm not flying, up this canyon, not being able to see that, I'll just go land in a field back, back a few miles. Um, I just didn't trust my glide computer basically. And uh, so I turned around and I stumbled into a three knot climb. It's like, okay, great. Climb up. I think we climbed 200 feet. And then like, there was the airport right there. (laughs)
3: Uh, The trusting the the flight computer thing for, you know, relative newbie, like, you know, myself that, that only has a, a couple of you know, a couple of significant kind of out of the final glide of, you know, your home airport type of flights, um, that, that is a challenge for, for, uh, you know, glider pilots a little bit earlier in their, in their cross country career, just that sight picture of, you know, wow, that looks really, that looks really low and, and really far and, and, and lo and behold, most of the time yeah you get back and you know you're like way over um exactly pattern altitude and and it's and it just but it really does take i mean for some people i don't know like zach I, it, it just feels like you know, for that guy it was just always it, it's always you know clicked but um you know i'm a, i'm like pretty pretty conservative nervous nelly type you know type person and it's a little bit harder to you know to trust the numbers especially like when you hit a you know, big, big patches sink or, you know, like down here in the desert, um, you do get, you do get patches where um, you can be on the the wrong side of a shear line or something, you know, and things get, get interesting, but it all, it always kind of works out, but it's, it's just hard to get your, I think it's just hard to get your brain around that um, early days when you're, you know, when you're, when you're first doing it.
0: Absolutely. And, and, you know, even, even a 30 to one glide, which is, you know, reasonably conservative in a, in a ship that can do, you know, 45 and still air um, is really flat and really uncomfortable. You know, you look, you look at a 30 degree, a 30 to one glide uh, to something that's, you know, 20 or 30 miles away when you're, uh, you know, at, at the kind of altitudes that we're flying around here and, and it looks impossibly flat and it's not, and it's not even, Maximum glide for the glider so you throw a few obstacles a little bit of a hill that you have to fly over uh, and um, you know when I say the glide computer said we could make it, I mean it it said we could make it with a couple hundred feet over a pattern altitude, but it it just didn't feel right and I wasn't willing to to push into this unknown kind of a situation where you know we were gonna go from we've got safe fields behind us to Man, I just I just walked us into a into a place where there's nowhere level to land. Um, so, mm-hmm. you know, definitely uh, I definitely understand and, and can can jive with the chicken the chicken aspect. I am not uh, I'm not nearly as bold as a lot of people. <laughs> uh, so we we got up there and we to just kind of close out this little story. We got we got up maybe to four thousand feet, so not real high crossed over to the tembler range which is the mountain range on the it's on the eastern side of the san andreas fault um and we had kind of easterly northeasterly winds you know 10 to 15 miles an hour not real strong and i ridge soared for the next probably 15 miles um, back to the north headed back towards avenal until we got to the highway 58 um Pass. So there's a highway that comes through a little notch, and that notch creates just enough of a vent for the marine air to push through. And uh, sure enough, there was a nice eddy of you know marine air that was filling in, that right. triggered a, a conversion thermal and got to got a nice climb there to six or seven thousand feet, which um, got us to the next pass, which is Highway 40, 46 and forty one. Um, got another thermal behind Orchard Peak there and then had final glide back to Alvinol. And, and uh, you know, it was, it was one of those things that as far as our, as far as our goal, you know, we, we were, it was a complete failure. There was like, you know, we didn't even, we didn't even get a third of the way to Reno, but you know, you asked for like a memorable flight and and that one sticks out because it was just such a struggle. I mean, you were, we were down to Mm -hmm. within, you know, hundreds of feet of the ground at times. I mean, in this case, it was only because we were rid soaring. We weren't thermaling that it's low. The,
3: it's but, like the wind uh, within the loss basically. Right.
0: Yeah. Yeah. You know, but, but in, in the end, you're just like, that was great. You know, and meanwhile you can have a six or 700 K flight with, with no stressful there. moments or whatever else. And it just kind of disappears into the, into the background.
3: But, but, the, but the beers taste good on, on those days too. Right. So yeah. So uh, transitioning uh, yeah. a little bit. So so that was memorable. Let's go to what's the most concerning or sketchy moments or slice of time that you can remember in a glider? If you had to just pick one, so that could be a, a tow on launch. It could be, you know, it could be a landing. Um, could be rotor, like just kind of any anything that just where you were kind of like, oh shit, like you know, this isn't particularly good right now.
0: I would say that this wave flight over to the Sierras uh, had, had that moment for me. You
2: know, I've experienced,
0: I've experienced rotor out of, out of Minden. I've experienced rotor in other places, but to, um, to, to be have the thought of, Hmm, is this aircraft going to stay together Uh, going through your brain? That, that's a, that was sort of a new one.
3: Okay. Well, we'll, we'll, we'll get there. So, we'll just keep we'll rip through a couple couple more setup questions and then we'll we'll dive into the uh we'll dive into the flight.
2: Wings and Wheels has been serving the soaring and sport aviation community for over 30 years. They hands down have the largest and most comprehensive inventory of sailplane and soaring supplies in North America, and they ship globally. Nearly everything you'll find on their site is in stock and ready for same-day shipping. Wings and Wheels is the exclusive American representative For HPH sailplanes, be sure to check out the Twin Shark, their latest launch. They're also now the exclusive distributor in North America for the new, just soaring, Glider Sim Pro. The team has thousands of hours of flying experience in gliders and airplanes. Staffed by Adam, Kelly, Julie, and Sean. A friendly voice will answer when you call or email them. Check them out at wingsandwheels.com. What's the...
3: uh what's the coolest or strangest thing you've ever seen from the cockpit of either your glider or powered plane, or hang glider in your case. Um, and I suppose RC, if you had a, if you had a camera hooked up there, but probably back in those days, you didn't. Um, and you're in a safe space here. So if you want to talk about UFOs, um, it's fine. Um,
0: I, I don't think I've seen a UFO yet. Uh, I, I, I would it'd be kind of, I'd be kind of cool, but that hasn't happened. So yeah. Um, I mean, I've had a variety of interesting experiences in in basically all aircraft, but I think one that that did pop into my head as you started asking that question is taking off in a T-shirt from Plowshare Peak after watching three people sink out. So this isn't a hang glider. This is probably in the mid-90s. It was like 100 degrees. It was just blistering hot and everybody was launching and sinking out. And so... I didn't really dress for the day. I punched off, found a climb, and probably within half an hour, I was at 13 or 14,000 feet. And so I'm flying downrange, and there was a bit of a convergence that day, and I ended up under a shelf at, uh, at 14,000 feet and my arms and the leading edges of my down tubes and my base tube were covered in snow because it had been snowing for about the last 15 minutes under that. So, um, you know, the surefire way to ensure you get high in a hang glider is to not wear enough clothing or don't take oxygen or, you know, whatever, uh, okay. whatever will, will make you the most uncomfortable seems to contribute to a, a good flight.
3: That's uh yeah, well, that, that is, um, that is memorable and you probably you weren't wearing gloves or any anything so you're just you're just basically all your extremities are freezing and you're you're kind of like okay well this was this was fun but i should probably burn some altitude now and warm
0: up yeah thankfully you know or or not thankfully the 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 gate the day giveth and t- you know and it taketh and it wasn't too long and i was back down in the sweltering heat you know kind of wishing i was it was high and cool again
3: All right. So, um, little bit of an abrupt segue, this is kind of like sports to weather on the local news. Sometimes it's a little awkward. Um, let's go to, let's go to avionics. Um, what, um, what flight computer setup do you have in your, um, in your glider and and what do you like about it and what do you wish it did, um, better or different differently if you had sort of a short wish list?
0: so for a lot of I'll, I'll kind of split this one because for a lot of years i flew with the flight computer that was in the duo which is a an old cambridge lnav um and i flew with xc Sor on some form of android device or even uh, old windows ce devices initially and it's a really good combo if that's what you can afford and um that works in your cockpit you know it doesn't it doesn't take the latest and greatest that said mm-hmm. um we upgraded Uh, my wife's glider, which is a Discus A to um, an LX 9000 a couple of years ago. And I absolutely love it. You know, it, it, it took a little, it took a little bit of work to get my brain around sort of some of the logic um, and and the way it's, the way it's set up or the, or how you have to think. And I know know, people sometimes struggle with that. Um, But I really do find that, all of the information I want is available. It's not. I'm able to lay it out in such a way that it's not redundant, um, so I can keep the the information boxes to to just the bare minimums for what I need. Um, it's for better or worse, infinitely configurable, um, and it's it's just really nice having everything in the glider. All you do is power up the battery. You can connect it to your to your phone over Wi-Fi. Mm-hmm. Um, Download SkySight, you know, get your, your weather information loaded into it for weather layers, uh, any kind of updates. Um, so I, I'm really happy with the LX equipment. I'm, I'm in the process right now of upgrading the Duo to uh, dual LX 9070s. So it'll have a, a 9070 front and rear. So I guess it'll make a great uh, training, training cockpit for those people who want to um, you know, trying to get used to the, the LX, uh, series of, of equipment.
3: Um, on on the weather integration, do you, you pull that down in the morning and it's this, it's just like an offline file that is predictive and it just kind of rolls through each hour and, and, and it's, um, yeah. How does that, how does that work? I guess.
0: Yeah, exactly. So, uh, so you're able to connect to your your Skysight account, and and then um, uh, the way the LX is set up is a little bit uh, a little bit clunky. It you don't uh, unfortunately you can't just say select you know the ten layers that you want you know out of Skysight or or, or whatever yep. the number is. You actually have to uh, have a page that has that particular weather layer on it in your in your configuration. So I have a bunch of duplicate pages set up. Because the things I'm mostly interested in are convergence and um, uh, and wave. Like, mm-hmm. you know, cloud base, I mean, look out the window, you'll see what the cloud base is, right? Um, thermal heights kind of doesn't matter. It, it, it is what it is. So, you know, things that may make more sense in flatland flying or something like that just aren't as applicable for me. But I do like having um, things like the convergence map or, um, the vertical velocities at let's say 7,000, 10,000 and, you know, 16,000 or 13,000 and 16,000 so that, you know, if you are hunting for it, you have it, you have some, some guidelines as to where it'll be. Um, so it's a little funky. You do have to set up these pages in advance in order to have, uh, the LX cache those, um. Mm-hmm. when you when you connect it to wi-fi but then once it's cached it's available throughout the day and you can configure it to display you know the current forecast for the you know whatever the nearest time slice is so i think they're half hour time slices so you know if it's 12 30 you'll see the twelve thirty convergence um for example or yeah,
3: i mean that's that's infinitely useful though i mean as opposed to you know not having weather integrated into your flight computer and you're, you're really just kind of going off of, you know, off of memory. I mean, you, you, could, you know, you can click through the hours and you kind of have a general idea, but it's pretty nice to have that, that overlay on your screen. Um, you know, especially like wave and convergence stuff. Um, Cause those little, little nuances um, and, you know, plus you just get a little foggy and sort of, you know, forget, um, which is kind of what I'm doing now. Cause I'm, you know, I've got like a, like the new UDN, so, and it doesn't. You know, it it has sky sight when you're connected to the internet, but then, well, you're not connected to the internet when you're, you know, eight thousand feet. Um, exactly. Business, right. So it's just you're just going off, kind of your memory from the night before, the morning before you launch, or whatever. So that that is super cool. Um, and if I could back up just a sec, so. Your your wife also flies um, gliders, and I and memory says she's also a tow pilot. So I think a lot of listeners are going to start to have a lot of envy right now. So so your wife's a tow pilot and a glider pilot.
0: Correct, and she lets me fly both her discus and her satabria. So you know it works out pretty well for me.
3: Uh, yeah, so I think there's a lot of, uh, a lot of jealous, uh, a lot of jealous pilots, um, out there. That's a pretty, that's a pretty, that's a pretty cool, um, that's a pretty cool thing. Uh, you guys can kind of share it together.
0: Yeah, um, it, 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 we're, we're, it's pretty lucky. Um, you know, she wasn't, uh, a pilot when we met. Um, I was, I was just a hang glider pilot back then, but, um, but, uh, she uh, she took a demo flight the same day I took a demo flight at Avonal And um, she's very competitive. And I think she didn't like the idea of me going off and doing something um, mm-hmm. that she wasn't going to be a part of. And there was this 14-year-old kid who was flying that day solo in the 126. Yeah. And I think she looked at yeah. him and she was like, well, shit, if he can do this, I can do this. Um, yeah. yeah. And, uh, and it, it it ignited a passion that she, she just didn't know existed, you know, like, like so many people, um, probably especially women, you know, they aren't introduced to the concept of, Hey, you can be a pilot. Right. So, um, it was, it was only in later in life that she discovered the passion for flying and, um, got her glider license and then got her, her power yeah. license, She got her power power license well before me. Um, and then, uh, Uh, instrument rating and um so so yeah it it works out we can we can tow each other um we have you know the uh we have the single seat discus we have the duo um the uh it would be a lie to say that flying as a couple is always easy (laughs) it can be very difficult um you have to learn to 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 separate things in the cockpit
3: you know there's yeah i mean that just comes with the territory right but yeah she she retrieved me, um, which is another cool thing about Avenol. So I got a, so I got a, a landout retrieve. Um, what a couple couple weeks ago, Zach just of course smoked me, and he was up in convergence, and I was kind of scraping around. I think it was coalinga, and it was all shaded, and nothing was happening, and um, and she just popped over in the 150, and you know we hooked up, and then um, you know had another hour flight after that it's really cool um so all right well let's let's dive into the uh let's dive into the big wave flight um and i guess for listeners that want to check it out on on uh olc i guess they just search for morgan hall and it'll it'll pop right up yeah
0: yeah the flight was on april 16th of 2022
3: Okay. And I've got, I've got OLC up on my, on my screen now. So maybe, maybe start with kind of like when you, you know, how many days before did you see kind of conditions shaping up and, and what was going to make this flight particularly challenging? And, and, and I, I my memory says it was, it was sort of a route that hadn't really been, um, done before in because i i guess you started in wave over on the, the the coastal side and then made it all the way out to the to the owens valley is that is that a correct assessment
0: yeah um so the so a few days prior to that flight um maybe even almost a week uh kempton Azuno it had, had shot me a text and had said hey you know looks like really good day coming up, you know, next Tuesday or something like that. I don't remember what it was. So, uh, it kind of got, got me looking at the weather a bit more, um, coming into that weekend. Um, and, and we had a number of fronts that came through and they just sort of wobbled around and they, you know, they hit Northern California there they, they didn't really hit us. And, and so the, the, the flight that Kempton and I had been talking about, um, just really wasn't lining up to happen. And, um, but I kept an eye on on Saturday because I, I saw I saw some wave potential, and then the closer we got to the weekend, the the more it looked like it was just going to be a good valley day with you know six thousand seven thousand foot cloud base out in the valley, so you know kind of a, a, a typical post frontal thermal day um, in the central valley in in April or May. Um, but what I noticed was we the front the timing of the front seemed to be such that in the morning there was going to be kind of residual prefrontal winds. So at, you know, 8 a.m. I think is the earliest that SkySight shows. It, it looked like there was going to be wave, um, mostly on the Tembler range, which is 40 miles or so southeast of Avenal. Um And and so it kind of opened up this this possibility of Well, maybe we could launch early and get into wave and initially my thinking was let's just see if we can stay up on wave long enough for the thermals to kick off and then you know descend down into the boundary layer and 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 have a thermal flight um you know i've certainly gone the other direction plenty of times where you're flying thermals and then you find a little bit of wave and you and you climb up into it um and then you end the day in thermals again but you know this was a scenario where it looked like relatively strong wave four to five knots um all the way up to eighteen thousand feet um i'm kind of a notorious sort of late planner like i kind of hem and haw and i don't really make up my mind until until pretty late so i i was kind of a jerk and i didn't let zach know early enough um that maybe i was thinking of doing something silly um and so i think it was it was like friday morning and i i i got up and i was like asked julie i'm like hey uh Can you tow me at dawn tomorrow (laughs) at Avenal? And uh, and so she was she was game for that. Um,
2: Just soaring, the makers of the Glider Sim Pro Sailplane Simulator Cockpit would like to congratulate German pilot Ben Fest for his recent victory in the first ever FAI sanctioned aviation esports event in history, the Sailplane World Grand Prix which Ben won after several days of exciting competition against some of the top Condor soaring pilots from around the world. If you are looking for a best-in-class dedicated sailplane simulator cockpit for Condor or Microsoft Flight Sim, look no further than the Just Soaring Glider Sim Pro. Check them out at justsoaring.com or at just.soaring on Instagram. Saturday flight
3: in Avenal usually only flies on... You know, on Saturdays, so it's kind of a lottery ticket thing where you you not only had kind of this perfect weather shaping up, but it also coincided with, you know, everybody's going to be out there and, you know, toe off and all that kind of stuff, which is, which made it even more, um, you know, more kind of special.
0: Yeah, there was a, there was a significant amount of serendipity involved. Um, although... You know, by the by the time that I was sort of getting confirmation that that, that she's willing to tow, we, we had a tow pilot scheduled for that day, but they weren't going to come out until later. And I'm not, I don't really like to ask people to come out for you know a dawn flight. It's a it's a it's a pain in the ass. Um, and and wave is also a little bit uh, of a different scenario. You know, you don't want you want to make sure that the tow pilots that you're asking, I mean, have have flown in that. I mean, the rotor can be kind of snotty. Um, It might, you might be taking off with strong crosswinds. You might, uh, Mm -hmm. you might be dealing with, you know, kind of interesting conditions on landing, you know, it's, it's, there's a, there's a lot of question marks, so it's not the kind of thing you just throw out to, to anybody who maybe doesn't have a a ton of tow experience. So having, having Julie available to tow or someone like Dan Gudgel, who, um, you know, is, is more than happy to get slapped around on the rotor, um is usually kind of my go-to people when, when I'm, when I'm thinking of an early flight. Um, so I think it was,
3: uh, think it, my, uh, my check ride, by the way, he's a DPI, um, and sort of a local weather. He, well, he is a weather guru, isn't he? Yeah, pretty much. Yeah.
0: Yeah. He worked for the national weather service out of Hanford for a number of years. And, um, you know, he, uh, he, he doesn't, he doesn't necessarily need Skysight, although after he uh, he 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 enabled a little adventure for me earlier th- last year or almost did, and I was like, "Do you have a Skysight subscription?" And he's like, "No, I should." And I was like, "Okay, and I bought him a Skysight subscription because I was like, come on, man! <laughs> like, you might understand all this stuff, but most of us need pretty colors to look at.' Uh, you know, it's it um, yeah. So yeah. it's helpful to, but it is really helpful to have somebody like that who who. Who understands, you know, the dynamics, you know, to a greater degree uh, than than I ever will, um, and uh, it, and can you know back up the pretty colors that I see on in in Cycle.
3: on your LX, yeah. So yeah. all right, well let, let's uh, let, let's kind of um, so I got OLC, you know, on my screen here. So maybe just uh, you know just kind of take us um, you know take us on 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 the flight there. Um, so you launched it, you launched it, uh, gee, what time was it? It was like it was eight o'clock, seven o'clock, something like that. Pretty, pretty darn. So long.
0: yeah, it was around. So the, the plan was to launch around seven, seven thirty, um, and then, and then get established in the wave. And, and if things felt really good, I, I, my plan was to dive over the back from down near Taft and, um, head out towards Cal city. Where there was a there was a wave bar pre- predicted, um, and then use that to work my way into the Sierra wave, and and you know what I was really sh- gunning for in this kind of a flight was it was the first thousand k flight out of Avonol and you know Zach and I have been sort of beating beating on that one pretty hard for the last year or so, and um, it really looked possible. And then what I hoped was at the end of the day I could climb in wave uh, near a waypoint called the radar site on the Tehachapi's, and then dive upwind back into the San Joaquin Valley and um, pick up some thermals at the end of the day, because it was supposed to be a good thermal day. Um, so around 7.30, I took a tow and between 7.00 AM and 7.30, the sky was closing in overhead. Um, we'd had nice fawn gaps uh, when, when we got up, you know, before dawn and um, the wave bars were visible and we, uh, by the time I was by the time the tow plane was warmed up and you know we were we were on tow it was it was starting to close up. I released at about, you know, twenty three hundred MSL, which is pretty low, um, but in you know, solid three knot three knots of lift and it petered out at like thirty three hundred. And I pretty much sank out like a rock after that. I had uh, no luck finding any other rotor or any other workable lift. Landed back at the landed back at the airport. Got out of the way. I ran Zach's wing. He went. Um, he took a tow out to the east, trying to find a different wave bar in the clear air to work. Um, and he was working that. And then I, I got loaded up for a for a second flight. So the second the second launch was at about you know eight fifteen or something like that. So about forty five minutes later than I than I really wanted to be. Um, and by then the sky had changed again, and we had some openings forming and. Um, uh, it was, there was a fairly visible wave bar to the, to the Northwest in between Avenal and Koolinga. And so I think I got off toe in the 4,000 foot range, which is pretty high toe for, um, you know, we often don't need that much of a, of a toe, but I didn't feel like sinking out again. And, um, and then it, it was a bit of a slow climb, you know, just a couple knots, nothing, nothing real fast. Um, and the, and the air was was very wet so that, you know, it was raining over in the, on the coast and Paso Robles and in San Luis Obispo. And, um, it wasn't, it wasn't like dangerous wet. We had large fawn gaps and, um, and plenty of, um, plenty of visibility down and behind me, but it was wet enough that, it's a little intimidating because you can't always see like what's over the next lenticular or, you know, what's, what's over the next, uh, next cloud bar. Um, and, uh, so I worked my way up to about 10,000 or so and then, and then started, started pushing, uh, to the South towards Taft and, uh, jumped upwind a couple of wave bars over near orchard peak. Um, and then, and then connected with the, the temblers and that had, that had a decent, a decent line on it with, um, I don't think I ever saw more than like maybe four knots, but, you know, four knots at, at nine in the morning is, is, is pretty damn good. And, um, sure enough, it took me right up to about, uh, just under 18,000, um, a bit, uh, a bit. Yeah, uh, of Taft. Like Taft,
3: you were, Taft, you were, um, what five, that, about 5,500 meters or something. It looks like.
0: Yeah, so I was I mean I I was I was giving myself a few hundred feet of buffer. Um I think at that point I had dialed in the Bakersfield um ATIS and and got the Bakersfield altimeter setting um, just to make sure I had, you know, as I could give myself as much room as uh, legally possible. And then um I think I had about 65 knot winds, so I dialed uh I dialed in Cal City as my, my next waypoint, which was, it's something like 75 nautical miles, um, from Taft. Um, and, uh, the wave bar that I was anticipating connecting with was, was a bit to the Northwest of that. So I felt confident that if I had Cal city on a fat glide, um, you know, that would give me time to explore, uh, the wave bar kind of near the Kelso Valley, um, on the, guess it's really the southern end of the sierra is just kind of near what what is known as the walker plateau it's in between Tehachapi and inyokern
3: well of course you have valley crossing though where i'm looking at kind of the altitude graph and you you lost like 2,000 meters um going from from taft over to the east
0: Yeah. So it worked out. Um, I think Zach looked at it. Uh, I think, I think I I ended up getting about 60 to one on that, on that run. So it was a pretty, it was a pretty easy glide with the tailwind, but I actually hit quite a bit more sink than I expected and not very much lift. So there were a few little wave bars in the Valley, you know, secondary or tertiary that, Mm -hmm. that really didn't produce any lift, but they managed to produce some sink. Um, Tehachapi was capped in cloud uh, although it was fairly broken so I could see like Tehachapi muni um, the paved runway there and I, I can't remember if I could see the, the Skylark north the glider port but um, but there were there were options and then the whole valley itself was was fairly broken as far as the, the cloud layer so it wasn't like VFR on top or something really sketchy um, it was basically just a, a fat downwind, you know, float where you're pushing along at a little less than best glide for the most part, just trying to trying to let the tailwind do the work for you. Um so I arrived at kind of the predicted area of lift at about ten thousand feet, um, which kept you know, that had me eight thousand feet above Cal City, which was only maybe twelve miles away at that point. So I was I was really in good shape there. I had lots of room to explore. Wow. Um, and uh, had, as soon as I hit, uh, as soon as I hit zero sink, um, I made a, I think I made a 90 degree left turn, and then just let the wind blow me into the wave, and it was decent, like three, you know, three knots of lift I think, um, and and right about 60 knots on the nose. So I pretty much just parked and went straight up um, until I got high enough and brave enough to push a little farther to the to the uh, to the north up into uh, kelso valley and up um, up towards the the lake isabella area there um and then uh when that lift started to peter out you know my next move was to dive downwind to inyo kern and um and you know inyo kern really marks the the end or the the, the southern tip of the of the quote real sierra so you know my expectation was that once i got there that was that was where i was going to start finding the good climbs and you know really be able to shift it into high gear and and and, and cover some ground um, and uh it it was a little weaker at inyokern than i would i sort of hoped um i haven't flown wave out of inyokern before so this was my first time into that particular uh, portion of the sierras in in wave and um you know i think I probably ended up connecting in a secondary wave because I was pretty much over Highway 395. Um, and a lot of times it'll be closer to the mountains than that. But I didn't really go through anything uh, closer. So, you know, no guarantees given the given the wind speeds. Um, and I started to press north. And pretty quickly I was butting up against the edge of the restricted area. I think it's 2505. And so I backtracked a little bit called joshua um approach to find out you know what the situation was for overflight of 2505 because um, it was going to make it a li- life a lot easier if i didn't have to to steer clear of that um, th- it it takes a little bit of a corner um so you know you can often run up just right on the you know right on the edge of the airspace and then it turns and, and backs away and gives you some more room um, so they uh, joshua they-
3: through there a little just that little corner like volcano peak or whatever
0: yeah yeah there's you know you can I, I i was gonna be able to sneak around the edge of that but i i just felt a lot more comfortable if i if i needed to be in the restricted area that you know it would be better to to go back and double check so i went back got it to a area with stronger climb and then uh called joshua and found out that indeed you know with uh with a squat code and, um, flight following,
3: mm-hmm.
0: um, I could, I could enter 2505 above 10,000 feet. So and that's where
3: you're powered. That's kind of where your powered guy sort of comfortable with the radio and talking to air traffic control and all that stuff kind of comes in handy over this thing also, right?
0: It, it definitely helps, you know, being familiar with the ATC system and, you know, knowing that they are there to help you and, um, it's 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 beneficial. I mean, they're they, they're they're generally really pretty easy to work with. Um, and uh, you know, so I just called them up for a VFR request. found out found out whether or not I could get in. Took a few minutes to decide if I was going to go ahead and take the flight following, um, and then and then uh, called them back and said, yeah, you know, I'd like to go ahead yeah. and get flight following. Um, and they were like, well, where to? And I'm like, up to Bishop. And they're like, how high? And I'm like, <laughs> as high as I can get, hopefully. <laughs> um, so, uh, so yeah, I got, a, got a squat code and then, and then that yeah. let me pers-
3: just climb to, uh, 17,500, you know, from you're like, oh, I'm in a glider, guys, but okay, I'll give that
0: a rip. Yeah. Um, and, uh, so the with a squat code, then I could enter the restricted area without, without having to worry about it. And, um, I used that for my, my first leg to the north. Um, and like I said, it's probably in the secondary bar. And uh, it was working, it was working pretty well. Um, it was working great in the, you know, up to about a launch
2: or so. Our longtime sponsor of the show, the Soaring Academy, is engaged in nonprofit outreach work with local area veterans and also with young people for the STEM programs at their top-notch glider port facility just outside of Los Angeles, nestled near the north side of the San Gabriel Mountains. They also have a fantastic flight school and are continuing to turn out great glider pilots every month. If you like to donate to their nonprofit initiatives or learn more about their flight school, go to soaringacademy.org or check them out on Instagram at Soaring No, when,
3: when you're in the Owens Valley on a on a wave day, um, I would imagine that, I mean, your flight computer says, okay, if you get into a jam, you know, you could land here, here, and here, but then on the ground, um, you know my reckoning of, of that is that it's pretty it's pretty sporty um, on the ground down there right so you're 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 pretty much committed to like not really wanting to land out back there on wave days
0: I definitely didn't want to find myself low in the Owens valley um you know the the runways are, are all aligned um, up and down the valley you know sort of generally north south or I guess probably more northwest southeast and the rotor was touching down in Elantia on the southern end of of the Owens dry lake Um, and so there were pretty massive uh, dust uh, walls of dust getting pulled up and out towards the Panamint Valley which is out to the east so it it was clear that the you know winds were winds were snotty I didn't check the AWOS at um, Lone Pine that can be a useful thing, um, you know. Just check and see what the what the winds are. That would have told me what surface winds were doing. I mean, um, but I didn't, you know, I, I didn't get low enough to what's where I felt like that was necessary.
3: 40, 40 knots or something crazy down there. What was what was that? I said, so what, "What's your guess on what it, what you know what the winds would be doing down there? if You got rotor touching down and you know dust walls and stuff."
0: I suspect it was probably, yeah, 40 knots, maybe 50 knots uh, in in the Alancha area on the surface. I mean, I mean, enough that that it would be very unpleasant. <laughs> you know, if assuming yeah. you landed and and you know got the glider on the ground, you'd you'd probably be stuck in the glider with the with dive brakes out and the stick the stick pushed forward for the next you know, day while you waited for somebody yeah. to come help you. Um, right, so. Right. So I, I wouldn't say that landing wasn't an option, but it was definitely very far down my list of things that I wanted to be doing in the Owens Valley that day. Um All right, so, so you're
3: pu- you're pushing north um, and yeah, kind of keep uh, keep keep going with that.
0: Yeah, so I I I'd, I'd got up into the 17 175 range and was running along at, you know, probably 100 110 knots uh, indicated. Um, and, uh, and around the north end of El- Elantia, if you, if you kind of look at, if you look at this, at the Sierras, you'll see there's kind of a point that juts out, um, right there south of, of Lone Pine. And then the, and the Sierras kind of make a little bit of a directional change and they, and that's really where the big stuff, uh, uh starts, you know, you um, you've, you're getting into 14,000 foot peaks, up into the Mount Whitney area and it's a it's kind of a dramatic change from from the mountains down closer to alancha which are you know, the peaks are at for the most part, you know, ten thousand maybe and um and pretty even, so they get a lot more jagged when you when you get up into the into the, the big portion of the Sierras. And I crossed through an area of, you know, sink but nothing nothing really terrible. And then it, it, it bumped up to maybe 20 knots down so that's getting pretty bad um and uh
3: knots down for for the um uninitiated is that's what like 2,000
0: feet per minute 2, down 2,000 yeah 2,000 you know 2,000 2,100 feet per minute um of, that's of,
3: pretty uh, insane that's yeah it was al- your altimeter is just winding down and you're you're kind of like oh shit
0: yeah, it, it's definitely, you know, you know that you've hit the, you, you know, you're not in the right air any longer. Um, and generally what you need to do is push upwind. Uh, you know, the, All else, all, all else things, all else being equal, um, you know, you, you want to hunt upwind first because with 60, 65 knots on the nose, uh, you know, going downwind, things go really fast and going upwind uh, takes a lot more time and energy. And somewhere in the, I don't know, thirteen thousand foot range. So I'd lost probably fourteen thousand, or I'd, I'd gone down from seventeen five down to you know, the thirteen ish. Um, and I hit just absolutely violent rotor, like um, you know, everything in the everything from every pocket of the glider flies out of it. Uh, I was cinched down pretty tight, so I didn't I didn't go anywhere. My feet, you know, kicked the underside of the panel and came off the pedals and so at that point I, I I slowed down a bit knowing that I was I was in for a bit of a ride um, and then you know then the washing machine or I think uh, I think uh, Zach calls it the you know the Whitney Rodeo started and um, I would I would call it severe turbulence I mean it was. Um, 45 to 90 degree right. uncommanded rolls, you know, to where you you're your
3: what was that again? Fort, 45 to what?
0: To 90 degree uh I would un, uncommanded oh. roll meaning I didn't tell the glider to do it and I went from, you know, um. a 40 a 45 oh. degree left bank to a 45 degree right bank or something like that. Um holy crap. And uh you know you're and you're going through shears that are probably Um, you know, 50 knots and from 50 knots from one direction and then 50 knots from the other direction. And you're, you're getting blasted and the glider is making noises and, you know, uh, you can go from nearly stalled to nearly red line in a a matter of seconds. Um, So
3: this is about the time you're, you're briefing yourself on your on your sort of ejection protocol and <laughs> reminding yourself where your D ring is, and like, yeah, you, you're, you're, you, you're definitely concerned at this point.
0: Right there, there was a moment there where it was like, hmm, okay, this is this isn't good. And and the, you know, and of course, during this, you're trying to figure out, well, wait a minute, where do I need to be to get back into the smooth air because this sucks and I don't want to do this anymore. Um, and so, you know, if you look at the trace, it it felt forever, but it, you know, it was probably only a couple of minutes. And I, I worked around near, um, a couple of rotor queue that were, that, that popped up. Um, and you know, the mistake I made was I, I just didn't push too close enough to the mountains. Um, and, and so, you know, I was doing some circles in the rotor, uh, getting thrashed really hard. And, um, one of the deceptive things about, the about that portion of the Owens is that, you are up next to some absolutely gigantic mountains. You know, you have a, approximately 10,000 feet of vertical relief from the peaks to the valley floor. And so when you're sitting there staring at Mount Langley or, you know, one of the mountains that's right right out in front of you, even though you're three or four or maybe even five miles away, it absolutely just fills your entire view. You know, there's nothing but mountain in front of you. So it, it's very mm-hmm. deceptive as to how close you are to the mountains or how, you know, how far away you are. And, um, you know, I just didn't read the air right. And, and I was like, mm-hmm. I probably should push closer, but maybe I'm in the rotor that, you know, maybe I'm still in the portion that's spilling over and the actual lift is, is behind me. Um, and, uh, and so I, I, I made a few attempts a little bit farther downwind, still in the rotor. And I had one turn where I was banked up at probably uh, 50 degrees of bank, probably 75 knots. And it rolled me to 45 degree bank in the opposite direction. So I was in a left turn and it rolled me to a 45 degree right bank and then pitched me over to the point where the only thing in my field of view was ground. So I was probably something like 70 degrees nose down. Of course, you know, it feels like you're upside down at that point, but in reality, it was probably like a 70 degree nose down. And no sound of airspeed, uh, you know, wow. contro- you wiggle the controls and like, there's no, there's no air flowing over <laughs> any of the control surfaces. <laughs> and I, I, uh, I recovered from that and I was like, fuck this, I'm out. <laughs> and I think I was at, you know, 13, 12 or 13,000 feet at that point And I headed back towards Elantia and um, I figured I'd go collect my wits. So that was,
3: that was up. A- um what is it on the olc oh, it's uh timos peak or something that is that wait no no it's up oh by lone pine that's where you that's where you kind of bugged out right
0: yeah yeah so it's uh, i was probably uh, almost yeah. due south of, yeah, of lone okay. pine i, and, I see there you know, on the trip, so, yeah
3: yeah and whitney's so, huge you know 4400 meter peak um And so then you, you, and so like you saw the light and God was talking to you and, and it was kind of like, well, this is probably a good time to turn back down the valley and, um, try to get back home.
0: Well, I just was regrouping at that point. Like I, I didn't, I, I I didn't have, uh, you know, I, I, I didn't really feel like blowing up the glider, um, and, uh. And exploring skydiving, um, and that's really the only time I've felt like that in a glider. I've been thrown around before, and I've I've I wouldn't say lost control, but you know I've had times when the control surfaces are simply not enough to counteract what the air is doing. But this was the first time that you know the glider was making noises.
3: Well, um, but for a hang glider pilot, I mean, come on, ejecting you know ejecting at ten thousand feet in in wave, I mean that would probably be pretty uh, pretty exhilarating. You know? <laughs>
0: Yeah, I, I I got most of that exhilaration out when I was younger. I, I was perfectly okay yeah. with a more a, a more benign flight. Um, so yeah, I was like, yeah, this isn't worth you know, a thousand k is not worth dying over um or getting dragged across the desert or destroying my wife's glider or any number of things. So mm-hmm. I uh, I headed back towards elantia and and I reconnected in the wave. But then you know, as soon as I got back up to like seventeen, I was like, well, maybe it won't be that bad if I go try again. <laughs> and uh and so i turned around and, you know And by now i've wasted 10 or 15 miles and i i turn around and i fly back up and i i got up into the same area and i didn't get into bad a rotor but i started getting i started getting into the rotor again and i just was mm-hmm. like nope nope i'm not doing this um and yeah. uh i mean it was a mistake i i you know i i just i didn't think my way through the problem and be like okay wait what's going on here you know like the mountain range direction has changed the the wave is going to be spilling over in a different way. I'm going to have to punch upwind two more miles than I have, you know? So of course I tried the same thing and I had the same experience. It wasn't, it wasn't really shocking. Um, but in the moment dealing with the adrenaline and everything else, I, I, I was like, uh, that's okay. I don't, I don't need to do this. So I, I turned and I ran South, um, you know, the Monty Python run away, run away moment. Um, and, uh, And, I, and uh, so I ran down, I ran, I had a really uneventful run to the south other than, other than, you know, almost uh, just getting into smooth, strong lift to the point where you're, you know, you're, you're running up on VNE um, and, and, st- and, and still mean, climbing.
3: That I mean, that kind of fast forwards us to, okay, so you're, you're high and good and you, you get back down the valley and, and now you know, you're kind of looking at your watch and it's like, okay, I need to start getting back, um, you know, to, to Avenal. Um, and it looks like, see, where are you? So you're.
0: So I made, I made two laps. Uh, I essentially made two laps in the Sierra, um, between Inyo Kern and Lone Pine. So, you know, I had my, I had my fun in the rotor. I ran south past Inyo Kern a little ways. I turned around and I ran back north, um, got into the rotor again, turned around, um, and then started my run south. I mean, I didn't have, I knew I didn't have a little sea legs to go a thousand K or so I thought. And um, so my plan at that point was like, well, let's just, you know, let's just see if this whole thermal home in the afternoon works. Um, so it's probably... It was pretty early still it was probably on that on that second run to the south it was probably you know two two o'clock um obviously yeah. the the data is there so we don't have to wonder but just off of memory um yeah and it was a it was a really easy run all the way down past um all the way down past hatchapi. i mean there was there was lift available it was right where it was predicted it wasn't yeah. real strong so i wasn't able to fly very fast i was just kind of cruising along it. You know, seventy, eighty knots or something like that, um, until I got down to the radar site, um, which, for those people who aren't familiar with the area, it's a it's a it's called a radar site not because they not because of uh, being used for radar, but uh, they actually test aircraft there for their radar signatures, so like stealth aircraft, things like that. They put them up on pedestals and, and fire radar beams at them and see how they see how they look. So it's a it's a testing facility.
3: Then once you get on to the kind of the east side of, you know, the, the Southern portion of the Sierra, um, you know, I'm looking here. Then you go from like 5,000 meters to 2000 meters. And, you know, just like you're coming up to Bakersfield. And at this point you're, you're, you're just dropping into the Valley um, and then you start, you're starting to look for, you know, just thermal stuff at that point, right?
0: Yeah. So that, that portion was actually really spectacular. Um, uh, as far as the flight was concerned, because it, it was, there were these, you know, really nice puffy cumulus clouds, probably, I don't know, three or 4,000 feet of vertical development on them. So, you know, just your perfect cotton ball, but you're coming down from 17,000 feet. So you're, you know, I was five, 6,000 feet above the tops of them. And then, um, kind of weaving between them as I as I worked my way up towards the the north side of Bakersfield. So it was almost like a flying dream where you're you're just you know kind of carving mm-hmm. your way through these canyons of the clouds. Um, they were pretty nicely spaced and, and and everything, but I mean it was it, it took a while to before I got down below cloud base, which was only at about maybe six thousand feet. Um, and I I took sort of a northerly path there because. With the westerly flow, um, I have I've had several flights around uh, around that area where um, the ridge line works um, really well on the western slope of the Sierra if you can get into it, and uh, you can run for about 70 nautical miles up along the mountains um, with very little circling a lot of times uh, just just partially ridge lift, partially thermals, um, all the way up until almost near Reedley kind of south of or the east of east of big of uh, Fresno so at this point I knew that I was I was actually OLC wise going to be only about 20 miles or 40 kilometers 30 kilometers short mm-hmm. of a thousand k so you know my OLC home um display on the LX 9000 was was showing me at um I have mine set in nautical miles, so I think it was showing me at like 516 nautical miles if I made it back to Avenal, and I needed 540 to get to uh, to, for 1,000K. Always fun having to do the math from, you know, one unit to another. Uh, Mm -hmm. And so my option was like, well, if I run north, I can get past Fresno that'll get me to a thousand K and then I just got to try to dart across the valley. So I, I kind of took the northerly path around Bakersfield, but the westerly winds were so strong and the cloud base was so low that it, it really just wasn't safe to push up into the mountains as far as I would have liked to. Um, it's a long flat glide out over, I I wouldn't call it unlandable terrain, but it's terrain you wouldn't want to have to land in, you know, it's kind of rolling Hills. There's no flat spots, there's no fields. And, uh, you'd be dealing with, you know, a 15 knot, Headwind in in less than less than friendly terrain, so I I wasn't able to push into the mountains. Though I wanted, so I I kind of came off the foothills and and headed out towards Delano. Um, and uh the only the only thing really that didn't go as planned that is for the day, aside from getting my ass kicked in Rotor, was uh the the thermals were just not as strong. You know, I mean, I think at four o'clock, the the forecast had been for I don't know, you know, four knots to 7,000 feet or seven knots to 6,000 feet. I mean, it was a pretty strong day. And it was like, I was really happy to pick up two knots to 4,500 feet. So um, it turned into well, a on real the, on slog.
3: the the airport, you got down to, what is it? It's, it's showing six feet. So what, about 2,000 two two thousand AGL at like El Rico or something. And then you dug out you dug out some thermal there. Um, but that's, that was, that was kind of as scratchy as you got like on the way. it,
0: It was fairly consistent. There were, um, but it was drying up really fast. So, you know, as I had descended from the flight levels down into the, into the clouds or, um, into the, into the thermal layer, you know, there were these big, beautiful puffy clouds. And by the time I got to around Delano, um, there were just little scraggly queue with with just wispies and things like that. And and the lift was just dying fast. And it wasn't actually even that late at that point. It was like maybe four thirty. Um, and uh, and so it, it really took me a long time to get across the valley. You know, I mean it was
3: Well and you're flying upwind too, right? I mean Yeah, yeah.
0: you're upwind, no you know, unballasted. Um so yeah. you're 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 kind of Kind of, kind of battling it. You're losing ground every time you stop in thermal, um, and right. uh, yeah, there were a couple of low points there. Like, like uh, in between De- Delano and and Corker, and I think I got down into the you know 2500 MSL range, and then you know found a climb and moved on, and found another little climb, and then I got to uh, near Westlake Farms, and there was a there was a bit of a convergence line there that I I got back up into the. I don't know, 6,000 feet, 5,500, 6,000, something like that. And at that point, I had to make a decision. Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. I was going to say, at that point, I had to make a decision because I had final glide to Avenal. But if I could get onto the hills north of Koalinga, I could get that extra 24 miles away from Avenal I needed to to get a thousand K. So I'm looking at this little convergence line that heads up towards Koalinga. And I was like, okay, I'm going to follow, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to take, I'm going to take these clouds and, and, you know, go this route. Um, I really only need two more thermals and, you know, I can, I can make this happen. And, uh, it didn't happen. <laughs> so I, I got to, I got up North of Koalinga and, Found a little climb that petered out uh, well below cloud base, and everything similar to what you experienced uh, earlier in the day was was shaded, and you know it was just it was six thirty, six thirty in the evening at that point, and I poked around as much as I could, um, found a few little you know weak one knot climbs and stuff like that, but eventually just had to had to admit defeat and uh, and and go go land it. Go land at or,
3: well, or celebrate success. <laughs> yeah,
0: it, you know, it, it was at the moment in the in the moment it was it was defeat because I was so focused on a thousand k. Right, but
3: but sort of uh, you know it, it's like success at a at a pretty pretty high level. I mean, that's it's a yeah, it was a that's yeah, cr- crazy uh, crazy flight.
0: Yeah, I mean, i I've I've torn the flight apart in my head. You know, out of all the different places, I could have made a, a, a decision different and, and uh, you know, got that extra 20 miles I needed to to get to a thousand K, which is just a number. But, you know, it's a big one. Um, and uh, but the reality was, is it 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 was a it, it actually I mean, I recognize it is a fairly groundbreaking flight because of the fact that it just it took off, you know, Cook off in wave, transition from one wave system to another, and then you know, finish the day in, in thermals, which is it's just kind of an unusual set of circumstances that they'll, they'll let that happen. Um and uh you know, but I think it's it I think what the best thing is is that it really kind of opens opens the door. It's a psychological barrier of, you know, we don't tend to jump wave systems this dramatically, um yeah. you know, most of the time. So you know it's not going to take much. Somebody, somebody can pop out of Alvinol, get into, get into the wave, take that same line down towards Cal city. It's a, it's a real safe, it's in in the grand scheme of things, it's a safe route, you know, from 18,000 feet at Taft, you can easily make Cal city, Cal city's well aligned with the winds. Um, When I was near Cal city, the winds were like 15 knots on the ground at Cal city. So they weren't, you know, they weren't bad, even though I was in 60 knots of wind at altitude. So, um, you know, as long as you've got a, uh, as long as you've got a crew and, and the willingness, it you know, it, it's a, it's a really viable route for getting established in the Sierra wave. And, you know, at that point, you go do 1,000, 1,500 K um, if you just, if you just put the puzzle pieces together uh, mm-hmm. on, on the right day. So um, I think, I think a bunch of people, you know, will, I think we'll see this flight duplicated, maybe not the thermal at the end of the day portion, because that part's was really just a, a unique aspect of the weather, but um, but certainly the, the the jump to the Sierras is is, is it, it'll Beautiful. be the first of many, it'll be the first of many, I'm sure.
3: All right, so we're running a little long in time. Going to just fast forward to the end here. Um, just last couple uh, wrap up questions. So, um, who are a few of the people or peers and mentors in the glider world that you look up? look up to for their accomplishments and soaring, whether that's racing, wave flights, um, people you follow on social media, significant others, um, you know?
0: Yeah, it, it's, a. you know, we're really fortunate that there are just a ton of people who are willing to share knowledge and, um, you know, you may have met them, you may not have met them. Uh, we're in an area where we've got, um, guys like Rami, we've got, you know, Darren Braun, uh, Matt Gillis, people with just tremendous, um, weather knowledge that they're sharing and, 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 and helping each other out. Um, you know, I think flying with Gavin Wills down in New Zealand was, was, was huge. You know, he, he's, a he's just a, a wonderful pilot and instructor to fly with. So, um, you know, there's a, there's it's really a lot of the, a lot of the peer group it's the upcoming guys like Zach and Thomas Greenhill and others that are that are uh, you know kind of keeping the energy going that uh, that that sort of you know bring out the kid and all of us so mm-hmm. there's yeah. there's a ton of people you know it's, uh, I'm not remembering all of them right now I'm sorry
3: <laughs> yeah yeah well uh, yeah I mean the the world's better definitely for the for the young guns that are trying to keep things uh you know keep things going and but yeah so thanks for sharing uh you know sharing your your story and your adventures and um you know can, congratulations on a on a on a pretty you know groundbreaking or air breaking i guess because we're in the, <laughs> in the air, yeah in and um you know, really appreciate you taking the time, uh, for us. And, uh, I bet a lot of people are going to, you know, pick up some pieces here learn some stuff and, and get in, get inspired to do, um, y- you know, their own epic flights and in whatever degree or way that is. Absolutely. So really appreciate it. And thanks for
0: coming on Soaring the Sky. All right. Thanks a lot, Mitch. Talk to you soon.
1: If you would like to say hi and let us know where you are enjoying the podcast, we would love to hear from you. If you are a glider pilot and want to share your aviation journey, contact us at chuck at soaringthesky.com or send us a message on our website at soaringthesky.com and Chuck will get in touch with you. We hope you join us next time for another soaring adventure here on Soaring the Sky, a glider pilot's podcast. Soaring the Sky is written and produced by Chuck Fulton, co producer Mitch Thompson. Original music for the podcast was written and produced by Kim Spangler. Graphic design for the podcast was created by Zachary Fulton. Voiceover work was done by Michelle Perez.